This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 46, part B. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the NegotiateX podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Mark Raffin. He is the host of the Negotiations Ninja podcast. So if you haven't ever listened to his podcast, be sure to do that. Let's jump in the conversation with Mark. Aram and I are big believers in preparation. We know that you are as well. What are some of the tools or techniques that you interact with your clients, you help them out, maybe the consulting clients to help them become better prepared for negotiation? I think whenever I talk to people, it's usually based on a team. So I have I usually chat with a VP of sales or a chief procurement officer or or someone in legal to say, okay, hey, we need to level up our team's skill set to be able to work on these things that we've identified as gaps, and then we develop a program for them, or we sort of do one of our off-the-shelf programs. It's really dependent on where they think the team needs to improve. Most teams, the, the vast majority, 98% of the teams that I talk to, have either not received any negotiation training or some of them received some negotiation training at some point in their past. And so it's it's choppy. There's no unified approach. There's no unified methodology, which makes it really difficult for leaders in those organizations to know whether or not their team has the right skill set and whether or not their team is approaching the negotiation with a unified methodology. And that's a big problem from a leadership perspective because God forbid someone decides to leave the organization and uh, leaves obviously their work behind. <laughs> Someone needs to know how to pick up the pieces from there. Like, where do they leave off in the strategy? What does the strategy look like? All that kind of stuff becomes critical to the conversation. So when I chat with folks, it's usually sort of at that leadership level where they say, hey, we've got these gaps. These are the things that we think we need to fix. We have a discussion about it. We talk about maybe problem actors in terms of the suppliers that they're working with or the customers that they're working with, depending on what side of the table they're sitting on. And then we develop a strategy around, okay, how are we going to fix those problems? What does the curriculum look like? And then we deliver that training. Yeah, it's amazing to me that number is so high. Do you have thoughts on why is there such a gaping hole? And I guess it's a good thing for those of us that are interested in this topic, that there's plenty of opportunity. There's an an unserved market there as, as your bio reads, you know, why is it though? Why, why do we allow this leadership challenge to exist with no unified language, methodology, approach, tools, skills? Why, why, why is that? I think it's two reasons. I don't have any data to back this up. This is my just my anecdotal read on it. Most of the time, if you're on the sales side of the conversation, you're heavily investing in sales training, like heavily, heavily, heavily investing in sales training. But sales and negotiation are not the same thing. 
Negotiation is a part of that sales process, absolutely. But most of the sales training centers around prospecting, it centers around account management, centers around relationship management, and they make the assumption that the negotiation part of that is part of those discussions when it's, it's usually pretty loose. And the goals that salespeople have do not incent them to negotiate, meaning they usually get compensated based on top-line revenue, not on margin retained or on value generated within the deal. And when I say value, I mean margin in general, profit, which makes sense, right? I mean, if you're, it, let's just use tech, for example, if you're a tech company, your word to your board of advisors, your investors is always going to be on growth. But the downside to that is growth at what cost, at what risk? Those conversations are rarely had. And only later, when it's too late, do those leaders go, shit, we shouldn't have made those deals, right? Like that's, we made that at too high of a cost. And now we've got to figure out a way to get out of it. And then they realize, okay, we need negotiation training. On the other side of the table, on procurement side, it's because they're severely under budgeted. Like procurement is historically, in my opinion, the most under budgeted department in the entire organization because they don't drive the growth, so to speak, that, that profit that's seen or the revenue number that's seen by the board. When they're just as important at maintaining risk, at reducing risk, at maintaining profit, at increasing profit. And it's purely a budget conversation when it comes to the procurement side of things. When it comes to other groups, it's usually around conflict management. So if you're a mid-level manager, senior manager, working in other departments, the conversation of negotiation usually centers around conflict. How do we deal with conflict? How do we resolve conflict? How are we more respectful in our conflict conversations? And that only pops up after a conflict has happened. <laughs> and so it's almost too late because then that sort of sours sort of the pool and then everyone's upset about it. And then you've got to retrain people on how to think. So I think it's a reactionary move mm. more often than not instead of a strategic move. Yeah, everything you're saying, it just, just reminded me of an article that I have my students read where I teach and call it it's negotiation as a corporate capability. And it hits all these things you're talking about. about if you really want to be an organization. And, and, and by the way, it's, it's, it's interesting and cool that you do work with teams and, and, the, and you're really focused on building the capability there at a team level. But if you want to do this well, it's got to be, there's got to be common skills. There's got to be a common language. There's got to be the right incentives. We've got to, you know, the conversations that we have have to reinforce this. It's, it's about, it's kind of about taking on the entire, and, and it's got to be nested within culture and strategy, right? So the business strategy, the category strategy, we've got to have it nested. What we're doing at the negotiation table needs to fit and support those things, not be some sort of abstract thing that sometimes we get lucky and sometimes we don't. Yeah. And I think, I think fundamentally it's a misunderstanding of the value that negotiation provides at a senior leadership level, right? Like we train for all of the other things we train for sales and we train for process and we train for lean six Sigma and we train like all of those things. And that makes sense because it's easy to quantify, 
what's hard to quantify in negotiations is how that generates value within the organization. Easier on the sales side and the procurement side, but when it comes to like conflict management and that kind of stuff, the the value conversation is difficult because you could say, well, you know, statistically, if we have less conflict, that means we're going to be more productive, more productivity leads to X, but that it's very theoretical. It's hard to be able to drive, you know, training to outcome in that kind of yeah. conversation. And I think that's why a lot of people don't do it. You were talking about batting earlier, knowing what your plan B is. It's easy when it's a, you know, a firm comparison of apples to apples. It's tangible, the tangible value with what you just talked about too, in terms of thinking about value and measuring an ROI on your negotiation. How do you try to account for the, the intangible things, whether it's with measuring value or it's comparing to my plan B and really know whether I should walk away? How do you, how do you think about that? I think you can objectively measure that because if you know what you need and you know what you want and you know what the values you want to attain on those things are, or even the clauses, what you kind of want the clause to look like or how much risk you're willing to take on for a particular thing, then you can have that really well laid out so that you know, like negotiation theorists call it your reservation point. It's just yeah. your walk away line. Like where, where am I going to decide to walk away from this deal? And then once you know where you're going to walk away from this deal, that becomes easier to be able to say, okay, where am I going to walk away to? Yeah. But I, I think it's a lot easier to put into practice than people think it is. People seem to think that figuring out your walk away point is hard. It's, it's not that hard. You know, something you had said earlier, Mark, was the don't be afraid to ask for it and, and don't be afraid to ask for more. How do you teach this in your trainings for for people to be comfortable for asking for more than what they necessarily need, but maybe a number that they would want. So we, we cover the concept of anchoring. Anchoring is the psychological predisposition where whoever throws out the first offer, usually statistically, we end up closer to that first offer than whatever we think the secondary offer is going to be, right? So, And it's a psychological thing that just happens in the brain. There's a danger of extreme anchoring where people throw out too high of a number and then lose the deal entirely. And someone just decides to walk away because they say, that's crazy. We're not going to do it. And they, that they haven't even gotten into the negotiation yet. Most of the time when it comes to a negotiation and asking for more, it centers around fear of looking foolish or fear of losing the deal or fear of rejection. There's a lot of fear that's associated with asking for more than we expect to get because we're, we're putting ourselves into a very awkward and uncomfortable position by doing that. And Depending on where you live in the world, there may be even a social taboo that exists with asking for more because you, you don't want to be seen as greedy or you don't want to be seen as asking for too much. And I think once people come to terms with the fact that asking for more doesn't necessarily mean just asking for more money. It also means asking for more value. It means asking for better terms. It means asking for more commitment from the counterparty. It means asking for a bunch of different things, right? So we're not just talking about price. We're not just talking about a dollar value. We're talking about all the components within that deal. Then all of those things become tradable. And once all of those things become tradable, then it becomes easier to be able to say, well, maybe I'd be willing to give up on this if I get more of that. Right. 
But unless you actually have that mapped out and know how much more you're going to ask for, those things that are tradable are invisible to you. So I'm going to circle back to something I said there, because I think it's really important. The, the fear aspect of things. Getting people to overcome that fear is really hard. And the truth of the matter is there's no silver bullet, right? Like there's no magic formula with dealing with that. It's just something that you have to practice. Yeah. Um, we do an exercise. I think it's a fairly common exercise where we ask people to go and the next time they're at a coffee shop, grocery store, liquor store, whatever it is, when they've got their bag of goods at the end, ask for a deal on that purchase. The goal is not to get the deal. As strange as that sounds, the goal is to put yourself into an awkward situation where a social taboo exists so that you can learn to deal with the discomfort of asking for more. And then just sitting in that and getting comfortable with it and practicing it over and over and over again. We took that exercise from a friend of mine who is a health and wellness coach. He's the kind of guy that you see on the magazines, right? He's got all the abs and he looks fantastic. <laughs> but his one of his goals is getting people comfortable with their bodies so that they can work out in public and enjoy themselves in public. Right. Um, and he needs to get people to the, come to terms with the fact that you are going to be judged. Fact. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, we don't want people to do it. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but you will be judged. People are going to stare. People may giggle. People may laugh. People may smile. Unfortunately, that's reality. Yeah. So what he does is he gets people to go out into crowded areas, um, malls, grocery stores, wherever, and gets them to do air squats in front of everyone so they'll do like 10 to 20 air squats in front of everyone randomly with no warning this is nolan's favorite thing to do by the way mark he's, <laughs> he's always out there doing air yeah squats. you missed it i was already out last hour so <laughs> the goal is not to get the exercise and that's an ancillary benefit the, the goal is to get comfortable with the fact that people are going to stare at you and that's okay and the same thing is true for negotiations well, and, and it could because not everyone grows up in a house like you were describing where conflict is, right. you know, we jump into it, right? You know, you talked about the building, like the, the ability to trade things because we, you know, and, and I assume that links back to a, a good understanding of what our priorities were. And so this kind of leads to through the negotiation. I mean, good process is so important. You talk about the ability, you know, the importance of taking notes, sometimes even assigning a scribe to that. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that so important? Are there other process things that are just essential in terms of how you manage the, the negotiation? Because if you don't have it, you're flying blind. Yeah. And if you haven't worked out what it is you're going to pretend, not to say that you would concede something, right? That's whenever I say, okay, manage your own expectations about what it is you're willing to give up in the negotiation, plan for concessions that you're willing to make. When a lot of people hear that, they get like the ego takes over and they're like, well, I'm not going to make concessions. And uh, I, so I don't think I should plan for it. Well, the danger to that thinking is that if you don't plan for concessions that you might be willing to make, you end up actually giving away a lot more than you should in the negotiation. And then also, if you don't know what you're willing to give up, there's nothing that's tradable. Right. Like, so you're going to ask for something. Don't be naive. The counterparty's going to ask for something in return. They're not stupid. 
This is a negotiation. If you just ask for something and they give it to you, that's not a negotiation. That person is taking an order from you. <laughs> so the goal here is planning ahead of time so that you know what you might be willing to give up. Now, does that mean you need to give up the full thing? No. Does that mean that you need to give up the thing very easily? Also no. But you do have to know whether you'd be willing to give up on something. And that's really important for people to understand. I, there's one um, analogy that I use in a lot of my training that's something to the effect of, let's just say you're going to go buy a golf bag and you're frugal. So you go on to Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or wherever you buy your used goods and you find the golf bag you love. You go to the person's house, you see it, they've listed it for 250 bucks and you say, I'll give you 200 right now to do the deal and they say deal immediately and you pick up the golf bag and right. you immediately feel terrible right because now that deal has been given up too much right like you've you've achieved that concession too easily and the simple answer to that of why is because there's no scarcity that exists with the concession that's been given to you we all know basic supply and demand, the more scarce that we make something, the higher the perceived value of that thing. Now, when we make concessions and we plan for our concessions, if we give those things away too easily in the negotiation, what are we doing? We're driving down the perceived value of the concession that we're giving up, which makes the counterparty not actually feel as good, strangely enough, the way the brain works in the negotiation. And so when I say plan for the concessions that you're planning on making, have have a trading plan, have an understanding of what you might ask for in return. That doesn't necessarily mean give it away, but it does mean know what you might be willing to give away and the strategy by which you might release those things. Hey, Mark, you do a lot of work with procurement specialists. You have a background in procurement. You know, we're living during some just amazing times of uh, inflation, supply chain challenges, things stemming from the pandemic. In your blog, you've captured some of the advice that you're giving those in procurement. Can you sam summarize for our listeners what are some of the key points in, in your thinking uh, as we, kind of, we, we sit here summer of 2022, what they can do to better manage those supplier negotiations? Yeah. I think that a lot of people believe that their negotiations are independent of the market and the industry and the geography that they play in, but the reality is they're not. Any negotiation plan that you put in place has to be influenced by the market and the economy and the industry and the geography that you're playing in, because all of those things could be different. So a lot of people try to paint the same negotiation strategy across multiple negotiations, especially if you're a global company. That's really dangerous because we don't know what the local geography market is like, right? So a market in the middle of Vietnam for buying goods and services is different than that exact same market of those goods and services in South America or Europe or North America or wherever. And so applying the same strategy to everything is crazy. It's bananas. Now, you can apply the same methodology of thinking to those things, but you can't apply the same moves, so to speak. And so what a lot of procurement people are going through right now is an adjustment phase because they've been living high on the hog 
for quite some time where it's been a buyer's market. For the last few years, they've been able to get phenomenal deals. The unfortunate thing is because of the economy and the supply chain issues that we are facing, it's not that way anymore. For, for, for some it is, for most it's not. And the negotiation plans need to adjust as a result. So previously, a procurement team two years ago, cost reduction for a particular thing, like year-over-year price decreases, may have been a big target that they were looking for in their negotiations. Today, it's about stemming an inflationary cost increase. Right. So avoiding a particular increase to them as a result of what's happening in the marketplace. And a lot of folks are having a lot of trouble with that because procurement people are very used to being pursued, not vice versa. Right. And so now they have to deal with the reality that the market has changed and we have to adjust. And that's hard for a lot of corporate leaders as well. When you say, hey, look, we're taking a 7% hit minimum, minimum on year over year price increases. Corporate leaders are like, what? And then you tell them that, oh, revenue is decreasing as well. It's becoming a very difficult situation for a lot of companies in North America. Thanks. You know, the, another question is, um, as you look at your own negotiation experience, do you have any examples that you consider to be, do you have an example of your greatest negotiation failure? And what did you learn <laughs> from it? I, I've had a lot of negotiation failures. Oh, as of the negotiations ninja, I, I'm surprised. I wasn't sure you'd have. Uh, no, listen, I'm. I fortunately, <laughs> I the name is. It sounds like I've got some sort of like crazy thing to sell <laughs> when I say negotiations ninja, right? It it sounds like a get rich quick scheme. But the truth of the matter is, uh, yeah, I've had a ton of negotiation failures, and I think that anyone that's been in the game for a while has probably also had a ton of negotiation failures. The biggest lesson that I learned was a lesson about humility in negotiations and not letting your ego get the best of you. I was negotiating a large deal. And when I say large, I mean large for me. It was um, a, a big deal. It was $250 million And I'd been negotiating this deal for nine months and had gotten about three quarters of the way done. And at this point, the counterparty and I were just butting heads and it wasn't going anywhere. The, the progress was, and we were sort of at risk of like damaging the relationship at this point. A decision was made to both pull both of us off of the deal. Their party pulled that, that counterparty off and my party pulled me off. And that was the right decision because the people that came in after us closed that deal in the next three weeks after we bang our heads for nine months. And that was not a fun feeling. It wasn't a pleasant experience by any stretch of the imagination. The ego definitely got hurt, but it was the right decision hmm. because we couldn't let our egos get in the way of making the deal work. Now, that's an important lesson for a lot of people, I think, because sometimes we, our egos drive the conversation like we want to achieve something for us. It's a win for us. Right. It's not. We, we need to check that ego often throughout our negotiations. First of all, thanks so much for sharing that. That's a, a great example. And I find that most of my failures uh, also kind of result from this lack of humility. 
How about a, su a success, a time that you've been able to, maybe a surprising success, something you didn't expect, put into practice these concepts and tools that you coach others to take, and you were able to achieve something that didn't seem possible uh, maybe at the outset? Probably the biggest success that I've had in my negotiation life is getting my kids to go to bed on time. <laughs> That's another question, which is, does this stuff show up in, in personal life? Can you, can you actually use it? Yeah, well, then, then let me tell you, like, don't teach your kids how to negotiate too young because they'll start to use it against you. <laughs> there was one situation. I'll tell you guys a funny story of where I came back from like a few months of travel and my wife, Jen, had left because it was girls night and I hadn't been around. So I obviously need to step up. And the kids were obviously noticed that I was super tired, right? I'd been on the road for a long time. And my eldest, who was three or four at the time, uh, I told him, hey, listen, buddy, it's time for bed. Now, I looked like I had massive fatigue, right? And he noticed, he noticed this. And kids are amazing at this. And he said, daddy, I can't go to bed. I said, why? He's like, I need two smarties before I can go to bed. And I said, no, you, you can't have two smarties. It's just bedtime. He's like, and he sat at the bottom of the stairs and he folded his arms like this. And he said, fine, three smarties. <laughs> and he, in he increased the amount. <laughs> and I'll tell you, man, I should have told him to go to bed immediately or carried him up the stairs. But I buckled under pressure and I gave him his three smarties to go to bed. I have since learned the error of my ways with my kids and getting to them to go to bed on time is one, one of my biggest successes. But yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Mark. That's cute. Well, that's awesome, Mark. And I just want to be the first to say thank you so much for joining us on the NegotiateX podcast. Truly an awesome conversation. You had a ton of great insights. Definitely going to be one of those episodes that we're going to have to listen to again. So as I said earlier, this is a, a podcast that is all about elevating your influence through purposeful negotiations. So with that, I'll turn it over to Aram for some key takeaways. Well, first of all, Mark, thanks. Let me kick it to Mark for just a second. Mark, any final, a final takeaway or thought on, on your behalf? Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would be remiss if I didn't plug what I'm doing. So obviously Please go do. and check out what I do at Negotiations Ninja. Just type that into your browser. You'll find me. But a secondary aspect to that is don't believe people who teach negotiation who say things like, this is the only way to do things, because it's not. There's a wide variety of approaches. There is a wide variety of skills and negotiations is a spectrum. On the, on the one side, you've got the super collaborative, you know, getting to yes, Harvard program style of negotiation. On the other side, you've got the slit your throat, I'll take everything that you have, Jim Camp style negotiation. And then there's everything in the middle that exists. And it's all good. It's all valid, right? Like Jim Camp stuff, and the Harvard stuff is all amazing and it's all going to teach you something. So don't just stop at one thing. Yeah. Read as much as you can, listen to as much as you can and practice as much as you can. Thanks. That's, that's great, great advice. As folks go back and listen, the way that Mark Frame mutually beneficial outcomes, appreciate that. The idea that the great negotiators are ruthlessly self-critical, so appreciate that. The idea of the pre-mortem, the idea that 
it's a real leadership challenge when we don't in our organizations get this right and really commit to doing the hard work around uh, negotiation training and processes and, and systems and getting those in place, learning to lean into the discomfort. I love that exercise. I'm going to steal that one. And then the last thing I'll share is, is a takeaway is, hey, we've got to be able to match our negotiation strategy with what we're seeing in the marketplace, the economy, what's going on in the industry and, and geographically and, and not try to say, a one size fits all approach is going to work. I like what you said. The, the thinking is consistent. Our strategy needs to be flexible enough to, to adjust as conditions change. So Mark, again, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate it. That is it for us on today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so we get this in front of other leaders. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.